Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 399 with Isaiah Hankel. Isaiah is talking about your mental energy, how to maximize it, to preserve it, to protect it, to deploy it optimally. So you'll learn one, the little ways we waste our limited mental energy. Two, how to tactfully deal with the people who drain your mental energy. And three, how to gain more energy by closing mental loops. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to albums we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F399. And here's the cool stuff about Isaiah. Isaiah Hankel received his doctorate in anatomy and cell biology and is a featured expert on mental focus, behavioral psychology, and career development. His work has appeared in The Guardian, Fast Company, and Entrepreneur Magazine. His previous book, Black Hole Focus, was published by Wiley & Sons and was selected as Business Book of the Month in the UK and became a business bestseller internationally. Isaiah has delivered corporate presentations to over 20,000 people, including over 300 workshops and keynotes worldwide in the past five years. So thanks to Isaiah for spending some time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Here is Isaiah. Isaiah, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Great to be here, Pete. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to dig into the goods. Uh, But first, can you tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up on a sheep farm? It was rewarding. (laughs) Some days it didn't seem like it, but the one day that always uh, stands out in my memory when I'm asked that question is a day that came every year as a sheep farmer, which is when you would shear the sheep. I thought you were going to say that. Tell what, what made that day special? It was just a good insight into uh, sheep behavior and, as I learned later, human behavior, uh, because sheep were very responsive to two things, carrots and sticks. And it's one of the many places where we get that phrase, uh, uh, having people respond to carrots and sticks because humans respond to those two things too. And so do you mean literally feeding them a carrot yes. and, and using exactly. a stick? Yeah, it's literally with the sheep and usually not literally with the humans. But with the sheep, to shear them, it's a painless process, but you have to get a large herd of sheep. In this case, it was usually 80 to 100 head of sheep uh, into a, a funnel, essentially, with a very narrow opening where only one sheep could fit at a time. And you would think this would be very hard to do, but sheep operate through a herd mentality. And what that means is, is that you could walk behind them with a couple of sticks, bang those sticks together. They're also scared of everything. and they would go running in the opposite direction. So if you just bang the sticks behind them, and if ahead of them was the funnel with the the large gate that they would be funneled into, they would run right into it for you. And then just to get them to go that last few yards, to get them to go one by one through that gate, you would just tease them with carrots held out in front of them, 
They'd walk right into the sheep shearer's arms, and uh, you'd have to wrestle some of the some of the larger ones sometimes. But in most cases, carrots and sheep, uh, carrots and sticks would do the trick. Now, generally speaking, when sheep are sheared or shorn, <laughs> yes, shorn. Is it enjoyable? Like, oh man, that was really a, a weight off versus like, no, this is my precious fur. <laughs> yeah, not uh, in the reverse order though. So they're they're first scared of the buzzing sound and they're scared of everything, but then it doesn't hurt. They're relieved. It happens in the middle of the summer. Uh, they're very happy afterwards. All right, and so I, I imagine that uh, right after the the shearing, it, you know, with the Times are good on the sheep farm. Like you got a, a bundle of cash coming in. Yeah, times were good. As a, yeah, as a, as a farm hand, you don't get paid too much, but you did get paid quite a bit more on that particular day. And it was it was always a sense of reward after working hard with your hands. And it's you know looking back, it's some of the most enjoyable work that I've done. Somewhat ironically. <laughs> We're not, we're not going to hold that against you to any of your colleagues or, or, or collaborators. Like, I'd rather be with sheep than, than you guys. It just made you very present, you know? And I think in today's world, behind screens, it's it's hard to get present like that um, in the same way. And I think you have to do it much more deliberately now. Yeah, I hear you. Well, well you talk a little bit about some of this in your book called The Science of Intelligent Achievement. What's sort of the, the main thesis behind this one? Yeah, this book is about how to protect your mental energy and then what to do with your energy after you have protected it, after you stop doing the things that are depleting you on a daily basis. Okay, well, that sounds important. Can, can you sort of, you know, lay out that importance? Like, uh, you know, why do we need to protect our mental energy? Isn't it going to be fine? Uh, or what's the attacker that we are defending against? It's usually people, but it's a lot of things. And, and I think the best way to frame it, and it's kind of how the book starts out, is mental energy is your most valuable asset. We usually hear that time or money is your most valuable asset. But we can quickly disregard these uh, as being your most valuable asset because most people, just as an example, uh, certainly in the U.S., have both a phone and a watch or a Fitbit, right? These things can do the same thing in terms of telling time, but we buy extra things for little features that we don't really need. And if you're not buying that argument, you know, go see how many pairs of shoes you have, right? Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to time, how much time have you spent watching or re-watching your favorite movie or your favorite TV show or watching a YouTube clip, right? It's not so much time that's valuable. Maybe you were exhausted at the end of the day. You just wanted a feeling of comfort. You watched your favorite movie over again. Again, these can be disregarded pretty pretty quickly, especially when, it, when you start comparing them to mental energy. And the last one that's very popular today, because we hear quotes like, your network is your net worth and all these feel-good relationship quotes, are your relationships. And we think, okay, well, it's just about how many people you know. How many people will give you value for the value that you give? And what we do there is we, we eliminate ourselves from the equation. And we forget that, oh, I have to have enough energy to stand on my own two feet and enough energy to produce and provide value or enough energy to be present and be the kind of person other people want to connect to. And so we've all bought things we didn't need. We've all spent our time on things that were a waste of time. We've all wanted to add more to relationships, right? Wanted to give more, but we're spread too thin. And the limiting factor is actually your mental energy, right? So how much mental energy do you have? And you can think about it a different way. How much, how many attention units do you have? Uh, I think a lot of people try to reduce it to something that's physiological, right? Did I get enough sleep? Did I eat? That That's really what controls my attention. There's a little bit more to it. Okay, well, so now I'd imagine that that might be sort of like the, the starting point of the funnel, if you will, in terms of, of just how much mental energy you, you have to, to work with. But then 
it gets frittered away and, and unprotected. So could you lay out what are some of the, the biggest drains on our mental energy and how do we prevent those from being drains? Great question. And let me tell you how much or how little you actually have to start every day. Oh, do. Thank you. So if you get five or six rounds of rapid eye movement sleep, REM sleep, then your, your willpower levels, your attention units, whatever you want to call it, your mental energy is going to be restored. If, and of course, a lot of people don't sleep as much as they should today. But if you get that amount of REM sleep, you start out each day with about 90 to 120 minutes of peak mental energy. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's it. And that's according to several studies. It's been printed in the Harvard, Harvard Business Review and, of course, a lot of uh, primary peer-reviewed publications. 90 to 120 minutes, so two hours tops, and that usually strikes within an hour or three of waking up for most people, so right in the morning. And then if you think of that as like your 10 out of 10 mental energy time, and then you have about an 8 out of 10 mental energy for maybe three to five hours during the day, everything else is much lower. And so if you start thinking like, like four, like four, exactly, four or five. Wow. If, if not lower. So if you start thinking like what you can actually get done in a month, right, gets reduced pretty quickly to, okay, let's say you're just doing what you do during those two peak hours and you have, okay, during a work week, about 10 hours. Think about it. Most people that go to an office, what's the first thing that you do during that time? Oh, they're going to get the coffee and check the email. Exactly. Skim some email, maybe look at the news. And then by the time you're done with the news and email and chatting with your colleagues, you are out of your peak mental energy state. And it's very easy when you're feeling good, your mental energy is peaking, you have your first cup of coffee, you get kind of chatty to just diffuse and spend all that mental energy. Here's the key. I didn't even mention this yet. During that 90 to 120 minutes, you are four to five times as productive as you are out of that peak time. Four to five times even as compared to the, the level eight energy time? Four to five times overall compared to the rest of the time during that day. Okay. Wow. So time is relative. Right. So if you can produce four to five times as much work during those peak mental energies, but again, most people don't protect it, you know, or we didn't mention meetings, right? You're in some nonsensical meeting, listening, you know, some meeting that could probably be done in seven minutes and you're spending an hour there. These are just some of the ways that people are diffusing their peak mental energy during the day and, and why it's important to start scheduling your day around these peak hours. Okay. And so I'm wondering, you mentioned it, it hits during the morning. Is that pretty universal regardless if you are a, a night owl or an early bird? Good question. The night owl is a bit of a myth. I think it's around one or two percent of the population actually has a uh, is biochemically a night owl <laughs> where this peak mental energy is at night. A lot of people just like to think they're a night owl because it lets them procrastinate during the day. But there are outliers, of course, in, in all sets of data. One very easy way, and this is would, would be con kind of considered a meta-analysis, not really a, a peer-reviewed study, but it's of yourself and you're an N of one or a sample size of one, is to just take your phone and jot down every hour of the day from the time you wake up to when you're asleep. So 6 a.m., 7 a.m., 8 a.m. And then just type down on top of every hour and you can set a, an alarm on your phone or your Fitbit or whatever, how you are feeling in terms of your mental energy in a scale of one to 10. And what you'll find over the course of even four to five days is you'll start to see a trend. You'll start to see that it pro you probably start maybe at a six, you know, maybe your person starts at a four, and then pretty quickly you're going to climb up to a 10. And then your 10s are going to be in a row, you'll have one or two in a row, and then it'll go to about an eight, and then you'll have lunch, and then there'll be the afternoon dip, which is a real thing, and you'll kind of drop to like maybe a five or a four. This, um, this is uh, what I've seen very, very commonly. 
And then maybe you'll peak for like one or two hours at like a six or a seven after that. And then you're right down to like a four for the rest of the day. Something like that. That's a typical curve. A lot of it has to do with your, the cortisol uh, cycle in your body too. And once you do this for a few days, though, you can see like, oh, wow, these are the two hours of the day where I am peaking. What am I doing during those hours? And you can start to rearrange your day in pretty simple ways. Uh, so you're using those hours for the things that are most important to you, your career, your personal goals strategically. Okay. Well, yes, that, that sounds wise. And uh, I am, I'm all about that. And so then I'm curious if it comes to those, if it's two hours, do you recommend doing, you know, two hours straight through or like having a sort of a, a power brief rejuvenation in the midst of it? Yeah, exactly. And one thing you can do is go for a walk. You can go to, to the gym in the middle of the day. If you can get out, you know, just some people walk around the office, but if you do get the blood flowing during that dip, then you can get your, your, your mental energies to start to climb again. And that's really the key here is you have control over this. And that question is exactly what you need to be asking yourself. Okay, I usually dip here. Maybe instead of doing the, you know, going to the gym in the morning, I can try to go to the gym or get some activity or go for a short run or whatever might be possible in my work life to bypass that dip and at least maintain maybe a six or a seven during that time. And so the key is just kind of restructuring your day for your peak mental energy or to keep your mental energies peaking rather than just letting them fall wherever your activities in the day fall. Mm -hmm. So could you give us some examples for you and or those you work with in terms of what are some great things that you might really try to slot into the peak mental energy times? It comes down to every person and individual goals, right? One thing that I started doing once I realized that this, uh, once I started seeing this data and I wanted to publish my first book is that I started taking my lunch break very early. Like I started peaking around 10 a.m. Um, this was when I would get up around six or seven, I'd peak at 10 AM and I would be on from 10 AM to about 12 noon. And during that time I could write at least five times as much as I could during any other time of the day. So what I did was I started taking my lunch from 10 to 11 AM, some cases, 11 to 12, and I would go somewhere and I would write. And I got my second book done very, very quickly because of this. If I had not done that, it would have taken me, you know, at least four to five times longer. So that's one example. A lot of people have, you know, a goal to start their own business, but they struggle to get a business proposal on paper. Or they struggle to take that first step. They struggle to do all kinds of strategic things for their life that if they were just using their peak mental energy, like 15 minutes a day, they can make real progress on. And it doesn't have to be right in your peak time, but that's just an impossibility for you. Can you get up 15 minutes before your kids get up? Can you get up an extra 15 minutes early? even if that's like your seven time, right? When you're at a seven out of 10 and use that time to do something strategic for your life where you're really moving the needle on your long-term goals. Yeah, I really like that idea of in terms of those things that are important, but you've been having some trouble getting movement on. That seems like a, a perfect combo for, ah, peak mental energy time is what needs to be allocated here. Yeah, and ideally, I, I think the, it was... I'm thinking of the four quadrants of the seven habits of highly effective people, oh, right. right? Yeah, not urgent, but important. And that mm -hmm. would be the ideal stuff that you're using your peak mental energy time for. Um, you know, every once in a while, it might be important and urgent, but at least you're always doing something that's important during that time. Okay, understood. So it's key to do the scheduling and to be strategic about how we are, are deploying it. And then beyond that, what, what are some ways that our mental energy gets zapped over the course of the day. Yeah, so once you have your map there and you know when your mental energy is peaking, now start asking yourself, what gets in the way of your mental energy? 
or you know, start tracking during the day, maybe take a couple of notes underneath that list that you're creating for four or five days and make a, make a list of when you're feeling the most drained. Who did you just interact with? What did you just do? Right? Everybody's different. And one draining activity or one draining person for me might be different for you. And what you're going to find is that there are certain people that really drain your energy, certain interactions, uh, certain types of interactions, right? Maybe sometimes with your boss, it's okay, but other times it's not, right? If they have a conversation with you during this time, right before lunch, when they're hungry, it's not good. So you can start avoiding that. Maybe every time you have a conversation with this person, they're really dramatic and they suck you into their drama. And you're like, oh, wow, this is usually happening during my peak mental energy. Like I'm responding to some text. I'm going down this rabbit hole. If I just stop responding to this person, it goes away. Maybe it's an activity that just brain just completely drains you and you really dislike doing it. Not something that's important, that's hard to get started that you need to do, but something that's lifeless and just pure busy work that's not really moving you forward. Something you could outsource to somebody else or delegate at work. You know, so start asking yourself, what are the activities that I can get rid of, the things that are really draining me? And what you're gonna find more often than not is it's people and that you've done a really poor job of being selective and deliberate with the people that you've allowed in your life. Okay. So intriguing. So being, being mindful and aware of, of the different people and how that's impacting us with, with the energy, certainly. And so then any pro tips for dealing with that? Like, oh, it looks like you know, these people are, are sucking the energy and I'd like to minimize my exposure. Uh, how do you do that with uh, tact or, or grace? Yeah. So I, I call it going on a relationship fast. And an important caveat here, just like with food fasting, we used to think, oh, if you fast for two weeks, this is somehow good for you. We know this can be very bad for your body. You don't drink anything, don't eat anything for weeks, very hard, hard on your organs. But we do know that certain types of fasting can be very, very good for your body. Intermittent fasting, uh, fasting certain types of food, like not eating grains for a period of time or not eating dairy for a certain period of time or you know, limiting foods one by one to see what you might have a food allergy for. All kinds of, of fasting that once you get more strategic with it can lead to big insights and big benefits. Same thing is true for relationship fasting. The problem is, is that we're all so connected to our networks and we all have been bombarded with, especially in today's overconnected world, that connections are important. You need to have as many Facebook friends as you can. Not just Facebook, though. You also have all, all your other social media connections, not just online, right? Because those aren't your real relationships. You have to go to a bunch of conferences and you have to listen to every single podcast out there. And you have to read everything possible. This stuff is good, but are you being deliberate? Are you choosing to read and to consume and connect with people that are making you better? Or do you really have no filter, right? How deliberate are you being? So one good way to answer that question is to step away temporarily, not forever, but for a few days. Step away from your relationships. Right now, of course, you have your kids, your wife, etc. It's going to be individualized for everybody. But there's probably a group of friends or at least one friend that's coming to your mind right now as you listen to this that you're asking yourself, does this person really make me a better person or a worse person? How do I usually feel when I interact with them? Is it just competitive? Are they a friend who's really kind of an enemy? There's only one way, one way to find out. You have to gain distance. Emotional distance will provide clarity. And by going on a temporary fast and doing it in a tactful way, right? you don't just say, uh, I'm not talking to you anymore, or I'm in a relationship fast, can't talk. You instead say, I'm going to be taking some time to work on an important project. You know, if, I, if you don't hear from me for the next couple of days, I'll get back to you on this date. You step away, right? You implement some of the things we've been talking about here, spend some more time on your personal goals, what you're doing, and all of that will become more and more clear as you kind of 
declog your life here with this temporary fast, and you'll gain some real insights by doing this. All right, lovely. I also want to get into your take on being busy is a bad thing. Uh, what's that about? Yeah, so busyness, and we hear this a lot. It's almost overused. It's a it's a badge of honor, and people think, oh, I don't want to be busy for busyness' sake, but I also I still want to be busy. <laughs> There's so much to do today, and, and things are so competitive in my career, or if I'm an entrepreneur, or if I'm trying to you know get ahead in whatever way. And we can just start filling our calendars and what we're doing with a lot of stuff without evaluating whether or not it's impactful. And it's actually very simple to figure out if something's impactful. You just need to find a metric, some unit of measure where you can determine whether or not you're moving closer to the overall goal, the reason that you're doing that activity, or further away. Most people never do this because they never carve out time during their peak mental energy to have the mental energy to make to, to draw those conclusions. They're so busy that they just keep going on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, hoping right subconsciously that one of these things is somehow going to be the opportunity of a lifetime. Someday, like one of these things is going to fall into place. They're going to arrive. Somebody's going to discover them. The boss is going to say, I see all the work that you've done. This is the one thing I've been waiting for you to do. Now I'm going to make you a millionaire. <laughs> we all have this kind of like hazy, fuzzy, this is why I'm working so hard lie, you know, going through our, our head at all times. And if you get honest with yourself, you'll realize it. Like, why? I stay so busy because A, I don't want to confront whether or not what I'm doing actually matters, because maybe it doesn't matter. And maybe that means that I don't matter right now, which is not true. It just means what you're doing doesn't matter. And B, because I think that what, if I let go of something, if I stop doing it, what if that's the key to my success? What if that's the the one thing or the one connection that's going to make me successful. And that's just never true, right? There's always other opportunities, but if you're not measuring, right, what you're doing, you have no idea if you're getting closer or further away or, or if it's impactful. doesn't matter how smart you are, how intelligent you are. You can't hit a target you don't set. Certainly. All right. So, so you set the target and you are, I guess, mindful of, of the metrics and how different activities are, are moving that. Uh, could you recommend what are some, some key metrics that folks have found uh, open up a world of clarity about uh, whether things are, are really worth doing? Yeah. So some, you know, sometimes it's easier than others. I mean, if you want to, you're starting to write your own book or start a business, whatever, you can literally just count the words that you've made progress on in your book or count the chapters or in the business proposal, count the section. If it's at work, right? There's likely some KPIs that are being measured for you by your manager. Maybe ask, uh, maybe evaluate and make a list of all the activities you're doing at work and look at them to see what you are doing them for. Like, why am I doing this? What does my manager want to see from this? Is this activity helping me gain any revenue for the company? Is this activity visible, right? Optics matter. Is it visible for my manager? They're actually even seeing the result of this. Is it producing anything? And Use that data too to go to your manager or your boss and say, Hey, I'm doing this, but there's no, we're not measuring anything. There's no KPI. There's no metric. Can we either set up a metric or can we cut this? Because it doesn't seem like it's impactful. And, and so just asking yourself, Why am I doing this? What is the result that it's bringing? Once you get to the result and you have it backed up with a why, you can determine a metric. Mm-hmm. Excellent. But you got so much good stuff. That I'm a little bit jumpy, but sure. I, I can't resist. I, I want to know it all. So <laughs> y- you've mentioned that other people's opinions, you, you liken them to an infection. What's the story here? And, and how do we, uh, I guess, inoculate ourselves? Yeah, I always think of the movie Inception, <laughs> where once something is suggested to you, it's very easy for it to get implanted in your mind and then to grow. And then eventually you think it's your own idea and you execute on it. And now you're 
chasing a goal that was suggested to you by somebody else without even knowing it. And in the book, it's called The Power of Suggestion. It's a real psychological phenomenon. For example, you come into work and somebody says to you, hey, how you feeling? You okay? And then a little bit later, a second person comes to you. Maybe it's just you didn't comb your hair that day, whatever it is. And they say, are you feeling all right? You look a little disheveled. Now, by noon, you're going to go home sick because you think you're sick and you're not even sick. Right. Just a, a very simple example. And we've all had something like that happen to us where somebody says something and then now it's in our mind that usually in the form of a question. And maybe they didn't realize to do it, but that's how powerful the power of suggestion is. And there's a lot of studies that have shown that opinions travel through social networks, just like the flu virus. Right. The same kind of epidemiological studies that have, are done for the flu virus, they've done for opinions and for moods, emotions, and they travel through these networks so that uh, one negative person can have a drastic effect on hundreds, if not thousands of people. And one person's opinion can do the same thing through the power of suggestion, through a variety of other means. And so you really have to be careful. Like anybody, anytime somebody gives you an opinion, especially an unsolicited opinion, you have to say to yourself, and I do this, I say, I reject that. <laughs> Even if you're just saying it under your breath or in your mind, you reject it. That's not true because of X, Y, Z. Otherwise, you'll notice that these opinions will start setting up a camp in your brain. They'll start uh, forming limiting beliefs, limiting stories, because our brains are wired to do that. Uh, we have a negativity bias, so we hear an opinion, we look for the negative information in that opinion, uh, we set up limitations, and we set up negative stories in our brain to protect us from negativity. A lot, uh, it, there's a part of your brain called the amygdala, where information flows through it at a rate 12 to 1 compared to positive information. And it flows through it right to your long-term memory banks, so that negative information is stored 12 times faster and more securely than positive information. Wow, that's striking. That's quite a multiplier. And so when you say, I reject that, uh, can you give me some examples of maybe things uh, recently that, that you've heard and you've decided to proactively state you know, out loud or internally, I reject that? Yeah, it sounds, it sounds a little bit silly, but it was as simple as the example that I gave you. You know, sometimes somebody's saying, are you, you know, do you feel okay or you look a little tired? I reject that. I look wide awake, <laughs> right? I mean, uh -huh. I, will, I will literally say that because otherwise it can start to stack on you. Or somebody says, you know, you don't really seem like you're making progress in this area. I reject that. I'm making progress here, here, and here. And then here's also where I'm going to work to make even more progress. And it's not about putting blinders on. It's about framing things differently. I heard it said recently that no frame, no game. You have to choose how you frame things in your own mind. There's something called defensive pessimism, which is really important. I'm not about, again, putting on rose-colored glasses, uh, being overly optimistic. You have to look at the data and look at what's going wrong. And that's what defensive pessimism is. Like you say, what could go wrong here? You figure it out and it actually makes you more successful. So it's not about that, but it's about you choosing how to frame things that are best for you, not letting other people frame things for you. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Well, so talking about... I guess, disproportionate uh, mental weightings. How's that for a segue? Uh, you mentioned the, the Zygarnik effect. I may be butchering that pronunciation, but it's pretty intriguing. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, so the, the Zygarnik effect is, um, now you have me saying it too, it's, uh, it's an effect that... Zygarnik. Zygarnik, yeah. I think I've had to look up uh, pronunciation of that about 15 times. So this is an, uh, an effect that... It makes an open loop in your brain very hard to let go of. It's, it's why open loops, things that are kept in our working memory, can have a drastic impact over our performance. And the psychologist who came up with it was obviously called uh, 
Bluma, yeah. So it was a, a psychologist who noticed that a waiter had better recollection, uh, recollections of um, unpaid orders. So as I've, I've been a waiter and I know this, right? So when you have an open table, it's very similar to having an open thought or an open loop or a task that's not done in your mind. And that's how this effect was discovered. So imagine you're a waiter. Uh, maybe you've been a waiter or a waitress before. And, you know, I used to waiter at a restaurant called Dockside in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And great job. We'd have about five to six tables in a section. If there was a certain number of tables full, let's say all six tables are full. They're all eating. All six tables are on my mind all the time. I want to keep them as happy as possible because I want to tip. Right. I can, and then if I'm asked at that time anything about the people at those tables, I have an amazing memory of those people, what they ordered, what's going on. However, as soon as the table table gets their check, they pay and they leave. As soon as that happens and I clear out the table on the computer, if I'm asked the same set of questions about that table, I can't remember anything because now the table's closed. The loop is closed. The task is closed and my brain dumps it from my working memory. That's the effect. And most of us walk around with hundreds of open tables in our mind at all times. And we wonder why our mental energy is so dissipated. And one of the most important things you can do, and this is uh, from a book, a famous productivity book called um, Getting Things Done. Oh, yeah. David Allen, episode 15. Yeah, there you go. Right. Just make a list of all the open loops in your mind, like spend an entire day or spend, you know, what I did is I spent three or four days during my peak mental energy times making a list of every open loop. I mean, everything from like, I want to paint the garage one day to I want to pay off my house to I have this entire list that I need to get through that's on my desk. Uh, it talks about collecting every inbox, right, which can be virtual and physical now into one place, putting it in a giant to-do list and getting all of those loops down on paper. That's the first step to getting them out of your working memory. And once you get them down, you're going you're gonna to have at least 100 if you do it correctly. I would say if you're over the age of 25, you're going to have at least 100. And once you get them down, you're like, I can't believe I was holding on to all of this in my working memory this entire time. And you're going to feel this huge sense of relief. And then when you go through the list, if you can start crossing stuff off, right, if you can do it in two minutes, and this is going back to the, yeah, the getting things done rule, just do it. Or you might, there might be a lot of things where you're like, oh, this is not happening. This is off the list completely. And then you can file other ones into like a someday maybe file on your computer and then the rest of the things that you actually need to get done, you can probably get it down to, in my experience, a list of 100 to maybe 30 items. That's it. And again, all of that's relieved from your working memory. All those loops get closed. Your energy will go through the roof after this process. But again, most people will never do it. Why? Because they're too busy doing stuff that's not important. Well, and another fascinating implication of the Zygarnik effect in terms of our, our memory for these open loops is, as I think, showing up in terms of of storytelling. Mm. And this is reminding me of another great author, uh, Robert Cialdini. In his, his later book, uh, Presuasion, he figured out how he could really engage his classroom if he, he posed a bit of a question or a mystery. Like, how is it that this tiny uh, organization was e- able to you know grow and overtake this, this huge organization in marketing or sales or whatever over four months. It, it wasn't this, it wasn't this, it wasn't that. And then they're like, well, well what was it? You know, and, and I think the same thing happens in like uh, a TV series or, or some of these, you know, maybe true crime podcasts where we're doing an investigation over time. It's like the, the brain you know, wants that closure and you're so intrigued and it's so top of mind 
that, that sometimes you're not even really enjoying watching the TV series or listening to the podcast, but you just got to know what happens to these people. Yes, you want to close that loop. And, and yeah, and you're right. Everything from marketers to entertainers have known this for a long time. I know uh, one particular marketer that sends an email every day. And at the end of it, it's like, and tomorrow I'm going to tell you about XYZ. Your curiosity is a very powerful way to create an open loop and keep yourself or what you're doing or what you want um, to be on somebody's minds on their mind. That's cool. That's cool. Well, talk a, a little bit about these different factors in terms of protecting your energy and prioritizing and not being too busy and, and focusing on the right stuff and, and, and closing loops and getting it all out of there. I'd like to get your take on, on non-negotiables and how this can be a productive means of, of achieving some of these ends. One of the best ways to close a loop is to not allow a loop to be opened in your brain. And one of the best ways to do that is through non-negotiables. And people have a hard time saying no today. And I, you know, I struggle with this. I think a lot of us do, especially people who are you know, are people that like to seize opportunities. You want to get stuff done. You're, you're a doer. So you think, you know, the more yeses I commit to, the more likely I'm going to be successful, the faster I'm going to be successful. But really, it's the opposite, right? I read it in a book, I think it was by Tim Ferriss, that said, you have to move from throwing spears to holding up a shield. And this transition point comes at, at various stages in your growth of your career, your personal growth, whatever it is. But you have to be very cognizant that should I stop throwing spears at this time? Like, is it time to stop trying to throw everything against the wall to see what sticks? Has enough stuck that now I need to start holding up the shield and I got to start saying no. And I say, I'm saying, no, I just don't do that. Like for this, I'm not taking on any more projects until this date. I'm not staying online past 8 p.m. anymore, non-negotiable. This is my morning routine that I'm going to execute every single day, non-negotiable. And there's real power in that. And the power is, is that you don't allow extra loops to get open. You don't allow extra stuff to start stealing your attention and draining your mental energy. You've, you've taken a stand to protect your mental energy in, in a formidable way. I like that. And I'd love to hear what are some, some non-negotiables that have been really powerful for you and, and those you've chatted with about the concept? Yeah, so a, co a couple I just said have been really powerful. So bookending my day is really important. So I have a non-negotiable that at this time, I'm offline and I'm home with my family and I'm spent, you know, present with my kids. The end. No matter what I can get done at that time, that's just the way that it is. And it actually makes me work a lot faster and really makes me prioritize a lot more carefully. Uh, same thing in the morning. This is the morning routine that I am doing every single day, right? It's like a, I have one that's like a 10 minute routine that can be done anywhere if I'm traveling, any, uh, no matter where I'm traveling, etc. That is what I do. And then I have certain key days too. Like on this day, this is the day that I do calls on, client calls. Only on this day, non-negotiable, no other days. It's got to be fitting on this day, right? And just if you can set up a few of those, it, you know, I, I call it bookending for a reason, but if you can add bookends and a couple of bookmarks to your days and weeks, it gives you a structure and it acts like almost like a tripwire to make sure that you're saving a certain amount of, of mental energy. Otherwise, things will just continue to swell and go towards disorder, right? It's entropy. It's just going to happen. So this this is a, a again, kind of a, a tripwire to prevent the entropy from getting out of control. Mm -hmm. Well, so I guess I'll ask it later, but I'll, instead I'll ask it now. This, this These 10 minutes, what are you doing with your 10 minutes there? <laughs> yeah, good question. So what I try to do and what I've noticed is if I can do something physical, if I can take in some information and then if I can put out some information, I feel really good. Uh, you know, and, the, and what I do kind of changes, but one thing I've been doing recently, I would say for the past six months, 
is I, I will get up and I'll do a little bit of core work, uh, stretching, core, just get a little bit of, I guess, mobility work in. Very little. Like I can you know do that in a couple of minutes. I'll meditate. I can for a few minutes. I will pray for a few minutes. I will read a couple of books um, that are usually set up into like either like a devotional or a, um, a book that has like really short chapters. And then I'll enter, do an entry in a gratitude journal. Uh, I'll write a little bit. And this is all really done in 10 minutes. Like it's about a minute or, minute or two a piece. You know, it'll swell if I have more time. It could swell up to like 30 minutes, but at least I'm getting each of those in in a minute. And then finally, I'll do something. Uh, I, have, I use, usually will row or it could be something with like a, a kettlebell just to get the heart rate up a little bit before having um, a lemon water with Himalayan pink salt. Himalayan pink salt. I've heard of this. <laughs> Tell yeah. me what's it. It's supposed to be special somehow. Yeah, I got hooked on it. I did a, a podcast with On It, and um, I started watching a lot of their content before to prepare, just like I did with your stuff. And uh, yeah, it came up, and it's supposed to be really good for cleaning out your adrenals, among other things. More than any other salt? Uh, well, not just the salt, but the lemon water with the salt. Maybe put a little bit of apple cider vinegar in it. The The Himalayan pink salt has a lot of, not, not chemicals, but like um, phosphorus, sulfurous, uh, really good... I'm forgetting the name right now, uh, but think, uh, minerals, minerals. Thank you. That it you feels like a word that might apply to salt. I'm just uh, guessing that you, can't, that you can't get from, you know, your normal table salt. All right. Well, Isaiah, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. I, I would say really take seriously figuring out when you are peaking and be greedy for that time. That is your time. That is your essence. You know, what you do during that time is who you are and who you're going to become. And, you know, I think in happiness, if that's your pursuit that we're all going towards, you have to realize that happiness is doing. Happiness is not just who you are, right? We all have a, a being and that's important, but it's also doing. And, and we live today doing so much, but we don't think enough about what we're doing, those activities. And so if you can own one or two hours during your peak time, you're going to own yourself. All right. Lovely. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Yeah, this is one I have on my desk. And I think for me, it's always been kind of a, a good mantra uh, that's kept me focused. It says, I do not fear failure. I only fear the slowing up of the engine inside of me that's pounding, saying, keep going. Someone must be on top. Why not you? Uh, it might sound too intense for some people. It's, it's a quote from Patton. But basically, it means, you know, fear is not the problem here, right? Fear or failure is not the problem. Apathy is the problem. Not, not caring not trying to be the best that you can be. That's what you should be afraid of. Okay. And how about a favorite study? Favorite study? Man, I had like three or four here and I didn't decide on one. Uh, one that I really like, you know, going back to what we talked about today is, is the studies showing people's performance during those peak mental hours. I mean, if you think about it, it's really showing that time is relative. How can a, a being a person during these set times get so much more done and outside of those times, how they're out there, you're, it's like you're a different person, and your brain is a different brain during those times. And it's something that I don't think enough people have thought about. And we've just scratched the, the tip of the tip of the iceberg in terms of what's possible with when we start tapping into to human performance through the protection of mental energy. And how about a favorite book? Favorite book, uh, fiction or nonfiction? I'll take them both. Fiction. I really enjoy the Fountainhead. I read it when I was young and. It's one of the reasons, it's one of the things that inspired me to start my own business or even write a book instead of just going 
and doing what I was told in, in academia. Nonfiction, oh, so many things. The one that I read recently that I think really spoke to me and I've read like three times is uh, Relentless by Tim Grover. And Sorry. what I like about it is there's people who start their own businesses. They're very driven. You know, we, people always talk about the dark side of being driven and how it's bad. And he kind of flipped it and said, no, this is very good. And some of the best things that have ever been created and pe- the people's top performance and uh, just a variety of things are because of this. And uh, I really enjoyed it. And how about a favorite tool? Something that helps you be awesome at your job? Something that helps me be awesome. Uh, I really can't get enough of these new Apple pods <laughs> because I do so many calls and I dictate so much that it allows me, one of the things I, I do when I have a little bit more time in the morning is I like to wear like a 40 pound uh, weight vest and just go for a walk and listen at like two times speed, uh, a podcast, right? Like yours or a book. And then I have a dictator that I'll, that I'll dictate into and the pods makes all that possible. And so it's a separate device that you're using for the dictation? Yeah, exactly. Because that way I don't have to stop listening to the book and I can just like rant into this. And some it's, you know, a lot of it's just, pure nonsense. I'm like, Oh, that's not really a good idea. <laughs> but sometimes there's these gems uh, that comes out of it. And, uh, once I started using two devices for that, it was a lot different because otherwise I'd have to stop my phone when I was listening to and dictate on my phone, etc. And what is the dictation device of choice that you're using? I can look it up real quick here. Oh, Sony ICDPX 370 mono digital voice dictator. <laughs> oh, the ICDPX gem. <laughs> I was going to say, you might know. Yeah, I, I actually don't. <laughs> and so then do you just keep it via audio or, or does a, some transcribing get into the picture? No, I would love to know if there's a better uh, transcription device out there. Well, I use Rev.com. I'm guessing you know what that is. But I no, the transcription devices that I've seen are highly complex where you got to have like CDs and you have to... No, I, I wish it transcribed. I don't think it does. Okay. And how about a favorite habit? Favorite habit, I mean, the getting, getting up at 5 a.m more than anything else. And this is something that like a lot of habits, you have to gently move towards. I, for the longest time, for years, I wanted to join, you know, this quote unquote 5am club back when I was waking up like at 8am and I'd set my alarm for 5am. I do it for like a day, maybe two, and then crash and burn and give it up for like a week. And then, you know, two weeks later, try it again. What I, what I finally did was I just started like 10, 15 minutes at a time. Over the course of a week, like every week I get up, I'm serious, like 15 minutes earlier and slowly over the course of about 18 months, I've been able to start getting up at 5am and it's just a beautiful time because you can shift when your peak hours happen. So I get up now and then very early when nobody else is up and I, I'm, there's no calls or meetings or anything, I have my strategic time where my mental energy levels are peaking. There's, it's empowering to feel like you're ahead of other people, even though there's all kinds of time zones and I'm on Pacific time, so I'm actually behind. So yeah, that's that's by far my, my favorite habit. But you're also into sleeping a lot, it sounds like. Yes. So yes. so when you go to bed? I track that and I go to bed at 8, uh, 8 p.m. And I have to because I track it on a Fitbit, which I know is not the most accurate, but I do know, you know, it's as long as you're using the same scale, right? It's apples to apples. So I know what I trend at and how much sleep I need a week. And I stick to that. So on like a Fitbit, I have to get, like I, I actually am a pretty light sleeper, so I'll be awake about an hour every night, uh, at least according to my Fitbit. And so I know I need about seven hours and 45 minutes, almost on the nose in terms of averages for the week. And I make sure that I that I get that. And one of the ways I that I have to do it is by going to bed at eight so that I can get it. And so that's seven hours, 45 minutes 
of actual sleep time. So then nine hours of in the bedtime. Exactly. So 745 plus the one hour. Yes, yeah, so that's right around eight to five. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly okay. Right. I hear you. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? A particular nugget? Yeah, just an articulation of your your wisdom that folks say, yes, Isaiah, that was so moving and brilliant when <laughs> I heard that from you. It, yeah, I think it comes down to the relationship fast. Most people don't give them permission. There's some themselves permission to do this because they think they're being a bad person or, you know, they're going against, they're being, you know, we hear words like antisocial. And I know it's probably easier for me because I'm an introvert, a non-shy introvert, if you've ever read Susan Cain's Quiet, but you have to be okay with being alone. If you're not, you're never really going to know who you are and you're never going to really know the power that you have in your own mind and what you can do with that power being your mental energy and, and what you can produce with it that'll make the world a better place. So if you really care about other people, you'll figure out who you are and you'll spend some time on your own in a relationship fast, a temporary one doing that. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? Uh, go to IsaiahHankel.com. That's probably the easiest or uh, actually the easiest is probably Hankel Leadership dot com and they can read some extra articles there and get a, a couple free chapters of the book and do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs yes make your list of every hour that you're awake for three days at least just record scale of one to ten what your mental energy is there's going to be some great insights there and then try to find one hour your your peak one peak hour to protect do whatever it takes to protect that hour it'll change your life and if i could just you know a quick follow-up there when you say one to 10, could you orient us a little bit? How does a 10 and a nine feel? And how does a five feel? And how does a one feel? Great question. And it's going to be, of course, subjective. But here, the great news is it's just you. You are the only subject. So it's okay to be subjective in this sense. And you're looking at a trend, right? So if you do this in three days and like your tens are all over the place, that's a concern. You're going to need to do it for a little bit longer. But if you do it for three, four days, like when I did it the first time in about yeah three, four days, I saw a very clear trend that a 10 was at the, about the same time every day, right around that 10 a.m. Uh, for you, you can always go back and say, oh, now that I've done this for a few days, this wasn't really an eight, like this was my 10, <laughs> right? And you'll gain clarity as you, as you move forward. The key is just knowing, you know, if you want to know in practice, what are those times when you're, you know, you seem really, really sharp, like people are asking you a question, you're not really delaying in your responses, you're flying through emails very, very fast. You feel like you're in a flow state. If you haven't read the book, that's by Mihai Chick. Chick sent me high. There you go. Yeah, I practiced that one. A lot of word challenges today. Called flow. Read that book. You know anything that makes you present and sharp. That's that's the feeling that you're going for. When do when does that happen? All right, Isaiah. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for taking the time and and good luck with all you're up to. Thank you, Pete. Great to meet you and great to be here. I really love how Isaiah brought it in terms of talking about how you can produce four to five times as much work during your peak mental energy time. Because I I just think I'm a real sucker for this lately when I'm pouring over studies, which I do, where they say, hey, such and such has been shown or proven to improve this thing. I was like, okay, well, that's cool. But I always want to know, well, is it like a 2% improvement? Like you've achieved statistical significance, nice job researchers, but is it just a, a smidge of a bump that you might not even notice or is it huge? In the case of Isaiah's scoop on what you can do with your peak mental energy, it is huge. Four to five times as much work during that peak mental energy time. So I encourage you. Uh, some people say, well, Pete, I don't have total control of my schedule. You know, my boss, my colleagues, my collaborators, you know, they sort of tell me when things are going to happen in the meetings and whatnot. But if you test this out and observe it in yourself, 
see what you can do and make the case in terms of, hey, it'd be awesome if I could have the hours between 9 a.m. and 10.15 to just do the tough creative work or or the really hard thinking work, which I do so much better. And we'd all be better off and more efficient if we can do that. And so you'll probably find folks are more inclined to agree. And I would you know test it out. I've been playing with this app called observe lately as an observe except the Q instead of an O, which is sort of like a, a time tracking thing. If you've heard of rescue time, it's it's kind of like that, but I prefer it. And, and it will really show you, you know, just how long did you spend on a different activities, which will then categorize uh, and you can make it automatically categorized based upon, you know, what uh, software program you have open or, or what URL is in the certain browser that you've got going or even the the page title. So anyway, a lot of flexible ways you can make it sort of auto-categorize it into activities or projects. And then I think you may well observe, holy smokes, I sure enough do this particular task two, three, four, five times faster in the morning than I do in the evening. It takes me seven minutes versus 28 minutes. Wow. So that could be pretty eye-opening to, to see that in, in black and white, those hard numbers. That's called Q-Observe. Anyway, show notes, the transcript, the links, the albums we've referenced, they're over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F399. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push the subscribe button. You'll hear from our next guest. It's Shane Parrish. He has a world of insight when it comes to decision-making, thinking optimally using different mental models. I hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.